I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. I think it's safe to say that no regulator in the world has anything that looks like the resume of Brian Brooks, America's acting comptroller of the currency. Though he's had a past life as a banking lawyer and law firm partner, Brian hails most directly from the cryptocurrency community and made a splash as the chief legal officer of Coinbase from 2018 to 2020, a crypto exchange that would come to be valued at over $8 billion. From there, he was plucked to become deputy comptroller of the currency and assumed the helm of the agency with the departure of Joseph Odding, who himself was a fintech beat guest. But the world has changed dramatically since then with COVID-19 and George Floyd's brutal death, rocking markets and introducing historic uncertainty and stress. Plus, the political headwinds are increasing as well, with the House of Representatives just yesterday voting to overturn OCC proposals to reform the Community Reinvestment Act, a legislative landmark designed to prevent housing discrimination and discriminatory lending policies a significant development with implications for the fintech community as well. With so much happening, I'm delighted Brian has agreed to come to Fintech Beat to offer his first official response to the vote, as well as his perspective to all the recent events. Here we go, yo. Brian, thanks so much for joining the show. Hey, thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Brian, you've assumed the helm of the OCC at a pivotal moment, right as Congress is reviewing the agency's proposed reforms of the Community Reinvestment Act, or the CRA, spearheaded by the former comptroller of the currency, Joe Otting. Now, uh, you're a rather unique figure in the American policymaking landscape as both a banking and fintech expert. So maybe you can walk our audience through both what the CRA is and where you're hoping your proposed changes fit in the larger story of technology and financial regulation. Thanks for the question. This is a great way to, to start off here. And I think you're one of the few people who's made the connection between CRA and fintech. And there is, in fact, a direct connection. So, so I'll come to that. But for your listeners who are new to the issue, the Community Reinvestment Act was sort of the last in a 15-year line of important civil rights laws, uh, starting in the early 60s, culminating in 1977 with CRA. And CRA was based on the idea that um, banks need to make loans in the communities where they're located and where they they gather deposits. What used to happen uh, in the sort of bad old days of the pre-civil rights era was that banks would gather deposits in communities uh, that were low income, often communities of color, and they would use those deposits to fund loans they would make elsewhere. And so uh, they would provide services in the form of deposits to to poor people, but they would use the money to fund loans to rich people. And that was, I think, rightly thought to be unfair. It had racial overtones, et cetera. So the Community Reinvestment Act imposed an obligation on banks to lend and invest in the communities where they were taking deposits, uh, which was a terrific thing. The problem is that over time, banking changed, and it mainly changed because of the kind of fintech developments that you were adverting to a minute ago. What happened was 
banks stopped relying on branches as their main means of delivering services. You know, we got smartphones, we got the internet, etc. And the first places that they started shutting down branches were in the poor neighborhoods that the CRA was designed to benefit. So think about the irony just for a moment, Chris. The, the irony is the banks shut down branches in the neighborhoods where poor people live, and yet the CRA only delivered help to poor people where there were bank branches. It was Kafka-esque. And so the point of our CRA rule rewrite was to fix that by making CRA less dependent on branches and more dependent on where do your customers live, right? That solved a major problem that we've seen over the last 25 years. And I think, I think the rule does a terrific job of, uh, of making that credit available once again, the way it was originally intended. So basically what you're saying is when a bank would establish itself, perhaps it would even look at minority and low-income communities and sort of say, this is not necessarily the most profitable operation, so therefore we're going to cut back, um, certainly with, with the physical presence in that community. And uh, you know, digital banking sort of offered them a, a workaround, but the question then remained as to what kinds of obligations even a, an internet Based bank would have in terms of servicing those populations. Well, you know, uh, you, you've been uh, you and Comptroller Auding were obviously extremely engaged in rethinking the Community Reinvestment Act. What metrics then did you have in mind, and what were the reforms that have been released uh, supposed to do in terms of speaking to these kinds of challenges uh, that banks and, in fact, uh, communities of color are, are, are facing as as banks evolve? Well, so I, I can tick through a few of the reforms that we were very focused on. The, the, the first one really is solving the problem of geographic assessment areas. So as I said before, it was all about the neighborhood around your branches. What we went to is, no, no, it's any place where you get 5% or more of your deposits. And, and, and so think about it. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've got accounts at all kinds of banks that are located far from where I live. Like I have a Marcus account run by Goldman Sachs, and you know, I don't live in New York. What, what the rule says is if you're covered by our rule, if you're taking my money into a savings account or a certificate of deposit and 5% or more of your deposits are gathered in my neighborhood, even though you're a thousand miles away, then you've got to serve my neighborhood, even though you have no branches here. So that's, that's the first thing with solving geographic assessments. There were a lot of other things that we did. We changed the way that we treat mortgage origination. So uh, now we count 100% of every dollar originated for mortgages in a low-income community even if the bank decided to sell that loan in the secondary market. And that's really important because by doing that, we allow banks to recycle the dollars from the last loan to fund the next loan, right? And so we create this virtuous cycle of more and more credit available for home buyers in these neighborhoods, which is really important. We also expanded the scope of people eligible to receive CRA investments. So previously, CRA was heavily focused on urban areas, you know, again, back to the branch footprint issue. But now we've made it so that lending on Native American tribal lands qualifies for CRA credit. We've made it so that lending to family farms qualifies for credit. Lending to people with disabilities uh, qualifies for CRA credit. And the purpose for this is to reimagine who are the underbanks in our society, who are the neediest people most uh, needing financial services, and delivering those services to them in real time. But those are the major innovations of the rule. The one other thing I'd say is we tried to make it so that banks know exactly what we're expecting by publishing a list of CRA activities that objectively says for all the world to see, these things will get credit. 
And I can't overemphasize that enough, Chris, because historically there was no list. Banks had to guess. And the result was they probably overinvested in some things and underinvested in others. We, we've now clarified that. You know, towards that last issue, one of the major criticisms of the proposal is that by making things easier, you end up with a, a single metric, um, which in turn allows or sort of a possibility for banks to game the system. And certainly that's, that's a, a critique that's been voiced in, in different uh, parts of uh, the uh, Washington, D.C. regulatory community. Can indeed this, this system be gamed, especially if there are varying um, ways to satisfy Community Reinvestment Act commitments? Um, and if, if so, what does this tell us about uh, really the nature of the assessment itself? Well, Chris, there's a, there's a lot in that question. Let, let, me, let me start where you started with the idea of gaming the system. So um, first of all, you know, we've built in protections to make sure that multiple goals are being achieved here. And that's designed to make sure that banks don't try to satisfy all of their, all of their CRA obligations by doing one big project in one town and then saying we're good. Uh, instead, no, no, you have to spread the money around to all of the places where you have at least 5% of your, of your deposits. Uh, but in the same time, saying that you can't peanut butter around a small amount of money, you have to hit a dollar uh, threshold as well. So I think that solves some of the gaming problem. I will say when, when people say um, that, hey, the list itself is gameable, I, I don't quite know what that means. What that sounds to me a little bit like is saying when we post a speed limit on the highway and we say the speed limit is 75 miles an hour, we're allowing people to game the system because they know that if they just drive 74, they won't get a ticket. My answer is, what's wrong with that? that that's sort of the nature of uh, you get what you measure, right? And if uh, 74 is too fast, we should just set the speed limit slower. That's my feeling about CRA as well. Here's a list of activities. If somebody thinks activities on this list shouldn't be on there, we are open to that feedback, right? We're, we're going to go test and see if we in, in incentivize more lending and investment. And if any of these things are bad or unproductive, somebody should tell us that. But I will say the, the level of discourse on CRA is at such a, such a gross level. It's um, uh, the CRA amendment's bad or you're dismantling this important law. To, to me, you, you got to get more specific than that. Tell me whether you think that mortgages in low-income communities should be funded this way or not. Tell me if you think Native American lands should be uh, qualifying or not. But just telling me, hey, having a list makes people game the system – Again, it's like my 74-mile-an-hour driver. I, I think we've decided that's safe, and that's why we set the speed limit there. Congress, and especially the House, uh, has, as you know, taken issue with the Community Reinvestment Act reforms on a number of grounds, including um, some we've discussed. Uh, what happens now, and do you expect your proposal to survive? Now it will go to the Senate, and we'll see what the Senate has to say about it. I am confident that uh, the senators will give this a careful read, and I believe that our rule will prevail there. Uh, if it doesn't, of course, and the Senate passes the resolution, it would then go to the president for uh, his decision. Um, but as I say, I am, I am confident that the senators will, uh, will look carefully at this, and I, th I think we will prevail in the end because it's good policy. How does the fate of the proposal impact how and whether fintechs are brought then more squarely into the regulatory perimeter when it comes to obligations to communities? How this plays out can, uh, if I'm not mistaken, impact future rulemaking in either direction? Yeah, yeah. So, 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 Chris, it's it's a great point. So let, let me let me unpack just uh, two or three things that you've got going there. So, first of all, in terms of the 
impact on a Congressional Review Act resolution on, on future OCC activity. You're right. One thing I think people need to focus on is if, if the Congressional Review Act is successfully invoked and our rule is nullified, then the OCC is uh, prohibited from uh, doing any similar rule. Now, the scope of that is, is open to question. Uh, I don't think it means we can never talk about CRA again, but certainly we will not be able to extend it to Native Americans, extend it to people with disabilities, have a non-branch-based uh, you know, assessment. I mean, those good things will be gone forever unless Congress itself chooses to impose them in the future. And, and I think that would be really disappointing for all of those groups who right now have benefits that we've created. So I'd start with that. Then I would say, you know, in terms of these, these fintechs that you're talking about, I think for your listeners, what you're really referring to are internet banks, you know, the allies, the, the axoses of the world that have no banks, no branches at all. And, uh, you know, you're right. They'll go back to a world where what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to deliver benefits becomes very murky. They don't have any branches to be assessed around. So what, what should they do? And um, again, I don't know why we'd want to create that uncertainty and reduce the benefits that they otherwise would be delivering under our rule. And finally, on fintechs in particular, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say that as part of our look at fintech charters, in other words, chartering companies that aren't depositories at all, but that deliver some kind of financial services um, by, uh, by uh, you know, technology means, we are very focused on what is the right way of thinking about financial inclusion obligations that ought to go along with that kind of charter. It won't be deposit-based the way the CRA is because they don't have deposits. Uh, and yet, providing a bank charter is a public benefit that comes with certain obligations, and we're going to be very serious about how we frame that up. Some of the questions with this debate are driven by technology concerns. On the one hand, uh, you have the banks, which are saying that collecting the data required under the OCC's proposed rules is really hard to do. And on the other, you have the civil rights groups, fearful of any mechanical rating system sneaking in the back door and diminishing the ability of human beings to add nuance, if one will, to CRA determinations. So uh, you get in the end this, this parallel conversation about the technology and, uh, and about how uh, accessible it is, how expensive it is, and, and whether or not it can be effectively leveraged to achieve the goals of the CRA. So as we said, you, you've really had a rich array of experiences with banks and technology services providers. What's your view on the technology itself, especially in terms of its ability uh, to achieve the kinds of aspirations you have in mind? Yeah, well, well look, um, I come at this from two or three different perspectives, I would say. So first of all, on, on the CRA proper, which you're right, will require the collection of different kinds of data that banks have traditionally kept, um, I, I think there will be some transition costs. That's one reason why the rule gives a couple of years for banks to comply, uh, is precisely because we know that. But on the other hand, I really am a big believer that data analytics, uh, you get what you measure, you know, these kinds of ideas are real things. And I think society and the financial ecosystem will be better off when we have that data. My guess is even though it's going to be costly at some level for banks to reprogram systems to collect it on the front end, they'll be super glad they have it in the future because then they'll be able to see that a lot of these CRA investments and loans are in fact profitable. And in fact, their market incentives uh, should make this sustainable over time. So I think that'll be a great thing in itself. 
you, you know that, uh, uh, of course, we've also exempted small banks from the rule altogether, or at least allowed them to opt out so as to avoid major transition costs for the smallest companies that are actually already rooted in some of these communities. To be honest, we worry less about their CRA compliance because they are rooted in their communities more than some of the biggest banks are. But I would also pivot, Chris, to the idea that uh, technology has a lot more to teach us about uh, how to help the underserved than just in community reinvestment areas. Uh, you, you've probably heard me say in other settings that um, currently, because we're living with a 40-year-old credit reporting system, currently 45 or 50 million Americans don't have a credit score. And yet technologists do have a solution for that, right? Um, in the gig economy, there are lots of people who have and thus have a hard time managing some of their bills because their, their income comes in in, in um, you know, sort of, non-recurring, you know, not once every two weeks kind of paychecks, and yet their bills are due on the 31st of every month. But there are now technology solutions which help you program the timing of all of your bills and optimize your grace periods and minimize late fees and help you save instead of spend. I mean, there are lots of things technology does to improve access and particularly to promote wealth building among the least well-off, CRA being only one example of that. And, And again, the irony is it was technology developments which really necessitated a rewrite of CRA in the first place because that's what prompted banks to pull branches out. You know, that's a really, really, you know, interesting set of, of observations that, that you've made. And, you know, uh, certainly you're, you're right. Technology is, is uh, a tool that's being used in lots of different ways. And, and some of those ways that we've discussed on this show involve um, questions about financial inclusion and, and how can you sort of orient technology in ways to achieve inclusive ends. And one of the things that you had just mentioned with the credit um, uh, rating uh, question and, uh, and, and, and generating credit, uh, I, I know that, that you have uh, personally really been interested in this topic um, and even suggested that the OCC can play a role in, in, in helping to get better outcomes um, uh, in that space. Could you maybe elaborate on how you think the OCC and even other uh, governmental agencies can, can help to play that kind of supporting role? Uh, for, for, for sure. Well, look, uh, right now, credit is heavily dependent on a small number of factors. Typically, to get a loan, you have to have a certain FICO score or some other credit bureau-derived score. You have to have a certain debt-to-income ratio. You have to have a certain loan-to-value ratio. And there might be one or two other things like, you know, how much cash do you have in the bank? That's what determines your ability to get a credit in the future. The problem is there are a significant number of Americans who pay all their bills on time, but they're bills that don't get reported to the credit bureaus. And so they don't have a FICO score or some other credit bureau score. I'm talking about rent payments, utility payments, Netflix bills and cell phone bills, things like that. And yet there's nothing, I mean, the studies show there's nothing special about paying a credit card bill every month that better predicts your future credit performance than paying your Netflix bill every month. The point is, do you pay your obligations on time or not? But we haven't set up the credit bureau ecosystem to capture that information. So we need a different way of doing that. There are a couple of ways that you can do that. One is you can use blockchain to create networks of, of data providers that, uh, that uh, you know, come together around a, a sort of a blockchain ecosystem and have a much richer source of credit performance observations. The bureaus have, that's their companies working on that right now. Another is you can use artificial intelligence to find other things that predict credit performance other than your payment of your mortgage or your payment of your credit card. And there are AI firms that are looking at that as well. So the point is these, these things can be achieved. They just haven't been achieved uh, because a current technology 
doesn't capture that information. And B, like as is so often the case with people who are underserved, about 80% of us are doing perfectly fine in the current system. And that's kind of good enough for jazz in the uh, good enough for government work, as they say, in the, um, in the marketplace. Our mission at the OCC, because we are a government regulator, is we have to care about the other 20% too, because we're here to serve all Americans, including minorities and including the least well-off among us. And we can solve that problem by allowing banks to use things that are different from the things they've traditionally used to measure credit. Well, you know, you, you mentioned blockchain and using blockchain uh, uh, technologies. You know, you certainly wasted no time when you assumed the helm of the OCC with the agency issuing a, a very sweeping ANPR um, uh, or basically a Q&A publicly that was asking whether or not banks should be involved in cryptocurrencies and and, and how, which I'm sure really caused a, a jolt uh, through the uh, banking industry and turned some heads. Uh, why was this seen as I- important to you? And uh, you know, what role do you see for crypto in the banking system, even beyond this this question of say uh, credit uh, scoring? So first of all, I, I learned a lot from being involved in two different blockchain companies, uh, one that I worked for and one that I was an advisor to early on. And one thing I learned is cryptocurrency, uh, generally speaking, is a technology for networking computers and financial services. It is not generally speaking, an investment product. And, and you have to wrap your mind around that before you can understand why it's so important for financial services. So I want to be super clear. I'm not advocating that banks should go and invest their capital in Bitcoin. I'm not advocating that at all. What I am suggesting is the, the fact that crypto tokens are used to induce people to devote computing power to distributed ledgers uh, as an alternative to central banking systems is likely the same wave of the future in finance that the original internet was for information technology 25 years ago. And so we need to understand that better. The beauty of distributed networks is they're more resilient, they can capture more information, and they can harness market forces better than individual uh, centralized institutions. You know, it's kind of interesting thinking about an agency that's not even a, a New Deal agency, but one founded in part uh, to help finance the American Civil War and uh, to see it thinking about blockchain-based solutions. What is your take on the banking side? Are they as uh, sort of looking forward as well um, to these kinds of innovations? And, and what kind of reception is this getting? Well, um, so, so first of all, I would say that um, there's enormous interest in the fintech community broadly um, about coming into the OCC bank charter for a whole bunch of reasons. And in fact, at the time that your listeners are hearing this, I am on the West Coast meeting with many uh, fintech founders in, in various areas, some of them loan servicers, some of them debt management systems, some of them lenders, some payment companies. So there are a lot of people who are very interested in hearing about this and hearing about ways this can uh, help them create growth and help them create jobs in the economy, which is kind of the purpose. I, I would tell you, it's interesting you mentioned the history uh, you know, of the agency in the 1860s, because I would argue the history of the OCC was all about innovation. You know, right before the National Bank Act, the United States' entire financial system was managed by small state-chartered institutions uh, managed from town to town, and there was no national system of currency or banking. And the idea was, hey, we're going to have this huge innovation of the banks that work everywhere. That was a big deal. 
Several generations later, we had issues of, you know, could banks use computers at all? And, you know, when we were uh, growing up in the 70s, that was the big issue is whether banks were allowed to do that and allowed to engage in data processing and everything. And now in this generation, there's yet another issue, which is, which is how does this generation need to receive their financial services? So, so I think it's always been like that. But there's a ton of interest out there. Clearly, there's an interagency set of concerns, like you say. Um, some of the things that we may do on, uh, on uh, innovation may impact deposit insurance, and we'll work closely with our colleagues at the FDIC on that. Some of it may affect the payment system, in which case we'll work very closely with the Federal Reserve on that. But there's a lot that the OCC can do alone because we are the only regulator that actually charters banks. And it's always been the role of the OCC to say what a bank is in any generation. So I'm very optimistic that there's a lot of demand for this and that we'll, we'll move this forward in a way that is pro-growth and um, you know, good for, uh, for financial inclusion. That's, that's the point. We've talked about the CRA, credit, um, distributed ledger technology. What makes the OCC the right actor uh, for achieving some of the goals you're citing here? And, uh, there are, of course, other regulators, uh, but how and why should uh, the OCC be the catalyst? Well, there are, there are a couple things. One is we are the only agency capable of providing a national bank charter. So the only other, you know, there, there are other agencies that regulate various aspects of banking, but in the federal government, we are the only people who charter banks. And that's important because there's no other agency you can go to who can allow you to serve the whole country uh, on a single licensing platform. We're, we're, we're the only ones. There are 51 state banking regulators, of course, but they can't offer that option. And there was a reason why Lincoln, in the middle of the Civil War, decided it was important that there be an agency offering a national platform. And that was, he was trying to knit a disunified country together again. You know, and he figured the only way to do that was to remember the Hamiltonian wisdom of, we need the national government, not the state governments, to be the primary financial foundation for the economy. Remember when Alexander Hamilton, in his first act, had the federal government assume the state's revolutionary war debts. That was the beginning of a national financial system, and the OCC was the culmination of that. So that's, I think, the reason why the OCC has that role. Today, of course, the reality is that the OCC supervises 70% of the assets of all banks in the United States. All of the biggest banks are OCC banks. And so what we do from a policy perspective essentially turns the rudder of the nation's economic ship. And so we've got to take that responsibility seriously, but we also have enormous influence when we, when we choose to use it. Well, you know, I guess as we end this conversation, maybe we should look uh, uh, forward from a purely economic sort of vantage point. I mean, you, you arrived as a nation was beginning its broad stay-at-home orders, which, was, uh, which were designed to slow the spread of COVID-19. What's your assessment of the health of banks today? versus, say, the beginning of the year and then sort of the early March, uh, you know, where you really saw the economic slowdown accelerating. Um, uh, what, what do you think you're, we're going to end up seeing? And, and what do you think it's going to say about the stability and robustness of the banking system? Well, uh, uh, that's a great question, Chris. The, the top line answer is banks are very strong. The, the good news is the reforms of the post-financial crisis era have led to strong bank capital positions, lots of liquidity in the system. I, I am not worried systemically about uh, banks as I sit here today. Um, 
Bank shareholders, of course, are going to see lower bank profits. That's an inherent part of us of these kinds of environments, right? Because of fiscal policy, we've uh, you know we've injected a lot of money into the system, but that can only last so long. Because of monetary policy, we've reduced interest rates to to zero essentially. So profitability is a challenge. Capital liquidity not not a challenge. Their balance sheets are very strong. There will be certain pockets of smaller banks uh, that have certain concentration issues in some areas that are affected by these lockdown orders. Um, principally commercial real estate and small business lending, which, you know, we're watching carefully. But as a system, the position is very strong. Uh, you, you know, just a few days ago, uh, when we were recording this conversation, the Fed's CCAR results came out, and you've seen what those look like. So I'm confident in all of that stuff. Brian, thanks so much for joining the show. Chris, real pleasure. Thanks for having me. One of the interesting things about the CRA reforms is that even if the OCC's proposals survive Congress, the story's not over. Indeed, as many critics in the House have observed, the OCC's final rule itself concedes that the OCC will need to issue another set of rules in the future to help set specific benchmarks and thresholds to ensure that the new framework will in fact drive more dollars to low-income communities. So at the end of our official conversation, I asked Brian about his regulatory philosophy going forward with the CRA and beyond, especially as demands for real economic access and inclusion mount. Here's my question and his response. So, I mean, when you talk about the CRA, you know, and the history, right, the history behind redlining, the history between sort of race relations in the country, the moment in which we find ourselves right now, you know, there's a lot at stake, you know, with every kind of decision. And, you know, what's been your sort of view when you go about thinking about questions of inclusion, sort of given the moment in which we find ourselves? And when you think about these questions of inequality that may be sparked from scenes of, of police misconduct and, and brutality, but often have like this beeline, if one will, to sort of economics. What's the the place of of banking regulators um, in this particular moment and and in this very specific history here in the United States? Well, Chris, you know I, I have a philosophy on this, um, which is which is kind of this. You know, I, I really worry that we're taking the wrong lesson from these protests. Um, you know, if the lesson is we need to tear down this system and impose wealth redistribution and, and all of these things. If that's the lesson, uh, you'll definitely have some people who are worse off, but in the end, you will not have very many people who are better off. You know, we, we, we've spent lots and lots of money on, on all kinds of public works programs and civil rights programs and things over the years. And I think what the protests show you is things haven't gotten much better. So like, why would we keep doing the same thing, expecting a different result? The lesson I take from this and, and my philosophy of all of this is, People who own stuff generally don't burn it down. And so when I see fires in our cities and everything, what I'm seeing are people who are angry that they don't get to own a stake in our system. You know, there's some people who see themselves as owners and some people who see themselves as renters or visitors. You know, these are the people who never got the mortgage because they didn't have the credit score. And so they've got nothing to lose. Those people deserve our work. They need us to solve that problem. And so what I want to do is let them get richer. Let them own stuff. 
Let them stop working minimum wage jobs and become owners of things. Let them stop renting and let them become owners of houses. That's what I see when I see these protests is, is like, I was lucky enough to participate in a system where I was able to do those things and other people, possibly because of their skin color or other factors, weren't able to do that. So if I can help with that in this job, using this powerful position, I'm going to do that. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. Fintech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.